The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people make friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. COVID started it. Inflation cemented it. And now it's become a fixture. I'm talking about the unrelenting crunch in old line retail. We see it pretty much every single day these days. There's just this endless erosion of customers and more importantly, a feeling in the stock market that there's no coming back from many of these chains. Even on a sedate day, like, like today with Dow inched up six points, S&P advanced 0.07%, NASDAQ edge 0.01% higher. Uh, these stocks just, they can't seem to find a floor. You can see it, sagging prices of Gap stores, Nordstrom, Kohl's, Target. You can spy it in the death spiral in shares of Walgreens and Boots Alliance or in the endless pressure on the stock of CVS. You know what's happening with the stocks of Foot Locker, Dick's, Sporting Goods, Best Buy. Those are pretty good companies. It's obviously causing the collapse of the dollar store stocks, Dollar General and Dollar Tree. Those are supposed to be the companies you go to when things get tough. It's a sense that, frankly, time has passed them all by. COVID created a world where people learn something new. During the pandemic, they sampled. They tried the club at Costco and ended up saving a huge amount of money, shopping in a place that's much cooler than they thought. I've seen a dozen TikToks not paid for by Costco, by the way, about how much people love shopping there. A new book, The Joy of Costco, just came out. Uh, talking about the treasure hunt from A to Z. The free samples are back. The hot dog prices haven't changed. It's just a cooler place than we thought, if it's the first visit. Or during the pandemic, people may have sampled or most likely resampled Walmart and discovered it wasn't the Walmart of old. Instead of those little Debbie snacks piled up right when you walk in or the giant towers of cookies and donuts and the aisles that are just such a turnoff to anyone's at all health conscious, which is a lot of part of the country these days, you find health foods. I kid you not. They have this gigantic aisle when you walk in, long display of nothing but natural fruit and veggies that rivals that of Whole Foods is monumental. You come away thinking that you're in a different store entirely from your last visit. The lighting's great, aisles are clear, uh, merchandise sharp. And I didn't need to call over a single clerk to buy anything, unlike a drugstore. Finally, during the pandemic, we saw a change in perception of the 
company that is Amazon. We realized that it could bring a ton of merchandise to your house and do so in the same day. You order in the morning, you get home from work, and there it is. That disrupts our shopping habits because if Amazon can do same-day delivery in the essentials, you don't need to make a detour to Walgreens or CVS or Rite Aid during the workday to pick them up. Because of the immense shoplifting problem in this country, all the best stuff is kept under lock and key at the drugstores. And there aren't enough people to easily help you unlock it. Amazon's less bothersome. You don't have to carry it home. The anti-shoplifting methods at our modern-day drugstores seem cumbersome and intrusive. Who wants to bake the buy? Plus, in many drugstores, it's the branded version behind the lock and key. The store brand are right there for the taking. Let's face it. The current version of drugstores in this country just doesn't, uh, doesn't really set up to do anything other than deter shoplifters. They're, they're not convenient. Uh, they're not quick service. If you can't get that level of convenience, it's better to go on your computer or your iPhone and order what you want from Amazon right to your doorstep. Sure, there's a pharmacy in the back. And yes, both Walgreens and CVS have embraced health. But it's not enough to offset the front. So for retail, COVID brought a massive sampling, Costco, Walmart, and Amazon. And after the sampling, people are sticking with them. It turned out to be habit forming. Why? One big reason is the stunning wave of inflation that has never receded in this country, the one that the Fed's so worried about. And you're worried about. All stores have had to raise their prices. Right now, there's a gigantic tug of war going on behind the scenes between the retailers and their suppliers. They're fighting over who eats the cost of inflation. And not many retailers have the heft to beat the big national brands. But Walmart and Costco are the two largest retailers. You can't do business in this country without being in their stores. Suppliers have to operate on their terms or they simply don't get in. Other than those two, only Target might have that kind of power. What makes Walmart and Costco so special is that if they don't like the prices they're quoted, they can just go and make their own store brands and put them side by side. At Walmart, they often have a generic offering right next to the branded version, something you can't tell the difference except for the fact that the price is often dramatically lower. But if you want to see what's really killing the rest of retail, I want you to go to Costco. There you see their Kirkland brand, which has an astonishing attribute. It's both cheaper and better regarded than the premium brands. In fact, it's, a, it's an ultra premium brand itself. That's not me talking. That's the consumer. Because Costco's made a study of how to make these things both better and cheaper on its own. They'll try to replicate and improve upon pretty much anything if it can save the club members money. Do you know that only once has it failed out through the brand version, and that was with soda. They didn't catch on. Hard to beat Coke and Pepsi at their own game. Everyone else, fair game for Kirkland. As for Amazon, even as the FTC is after them, they've done more than anyone else to keep consumer prices low, and they have done remarkably well uh, in doing so. Uh, but that has even at the cost of the, some of their suppliers. Hey, member of the FTC, that's called capitalism. These three retailers are fighting inflation in goods that never came down after all the pandemic Europe price increases, or at least they never came down at the competition. Oh, and with gasoline going higher, save money. Don't drive anywhere. Just shop at Amazon Prime. It doesn't help that uh, millions of Americans now need to start repaying their student loans again. That's $70 billion worth of breaks. Losing that repayment moratorium is going to make you even more value conscious. More people going to Walmart, Costco, and Amazon. Now, I kept thinking that there would be come a day when we return to normalcy. You have all those Walgreens strategic uh, locations. Kohl's got this great Kohl's cash program. Kohl's a gap. Really cheap. I still like going to Target. I've been there twice last month. But it's more than a trend now. It's a reality. You know it. I know it. The stocks of these companies say they're all in trouble. Macy's has a more than 6% yield here. Extremely profitable, though. Just announced they're going to hire more than 38,000 people for the holidays, down from 41,000 last year, though. Nordstrom owns the rack. Very good grower. Yields 5.2%. Most worrisome, Walgreen has an 8.7% yield and just lost its turnaround artist CEO, Roz Brewer. Those high yields worry me. I know many of you might be tempted to think that this is your chance. Well, look, we were tempted to dive in Foot Locker for the investing club. Sure enough, uh, you know, we figured Bountiful, Bountiful Dividend, excellent CEO, had a floor underneath. 
but then the dividend was pulled out from underneath and the stock got crushed. Our bad. The disparity between the three have-nots and all the other haves, it have, three haves and the other have-nots is so stark that you might believe there could be no comeback for the losers. I think that our stocks are actually doing worse than the companies themselves. Sure, they've been hit by theft. We know it's particularly bad at Target. Yes, they can't put the screws to vendors like the other big guys, but they aren't worthless. And if they merge, they could create powerhouse competitors. Yet the stock market says these stocks are all value traps, businesses that aren't coming back, a bunch of bed, bath, and beyonds and waiting. Here's the bottom line. I wish I could tell you to buy the beaten down retailers, but the one thing I know is that buying best of breed is the way to go. And at this stage in the retail world, there are only three best of breed general merchants, and they are Walmart, they Costco, and the Amazon. Let's go to John in New Jersey. John. Good evening, Jim. How are you doing today? I am doing well, John. How are you? Doing okay. Thanks for all you do, first of all. Thank you. Um, you know, my big question is about Johnson & Johnson. Uh, going on three years holding the stock. Bought it for long term, but I guess right now I'm just frustrated in the company and the fact that the spinoff with Ken V really hasn't benefited them yet. 2.9% yield isn't great right now. Well, look, I think and the problem, you know, remember, the stock did go up initially when they did that. That's when the, the investing club, that's when we sold it for the child trust. We thought it was up on a spike. The problem here, I'm going to be plain and simple, okay? It's the, it's the talc asbestos problem. This is what happens to companies that are being sued if they have anything to do with asbestos. J&J doesn't think they do. I don't think they do, but it doesn't matter. The juries do often, not all, but often. All right, buying best of breed is always the way to go, and they're only free. Walmart, Costco, and Amazon. Oh, everybody, tonight, what the heck happened to the stock of Adobe after earnings? I'm d- digging into the Cloud King's pullback and what you should make of it. Then RH hit you with the monster buyback this year, repurchasing about 23% of his shares. So what other companies are following in the luxury retailer's footsteps, and could it be a trend worth watching or maybe even buying? I'll reveal the names. And is it time to dip your toe back in the water after Oracle's post-earnings collapse? I'm getting the latest in the story direct from the CEO. So stay with don't miss a second of mad money follow at jim kramer on twitter have a question tweet kramer hashtag mad tweets send jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-cnbc miss something head to madmoney.cnbc.com fact Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand. NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money terms and conditions apply need to hire. You need indeed. Okay. What in the world just happened to the stock of Adobe last week? Here's a company that's had so much going for it. Adobe's a cloud king that dominates the digital media and marketing space. It's been a fabulous performer both long-term and just this year. Unlike the other cloud software names, it pivoted to profitability ages ago. It even has an artificial intelligence kicker, Adobe Firefly, which helps users to quickly create and edit digital designs using simple English language prompts. I've worked with the product. It's amazing. Now, the stock's up nearly 60% since we spoke with Adobe CEO Shantanu Narayan just in March when the company had first announced the launch of Firefly, not shabby. Yet after Adobe reported last Thursday night, the stock sold off, and it sold off hard, plummeting more than 4% on Friday alone. Even though it made up some of those losses today, it still had a pretty sharp pullback from its highs earlier this month. Opportunity? A lot of people would look at this action and jump to the conclusion that Adobe somehow dropped the ball. But we have spent days pouring over this quarter. i got to tell you, I can't find it. I can't find the ball that dropped. I think Wall Street got this one wrong. So what happened then? All right, let's start with the numbers, which were strong. Adobe delivered a modest revenue beat with sales up 10% year-over-year, 13% constant currency basis. Digital media business was better than expected, while their digital experience division, okay, that was in line. If you look, if you drill down, though, to Adobe's digital media annualized recurring revenue, that's called RRR, and that is the most important metric, it came in at $14.6 billion. That's about $50 million higher than anticipated. Thanks to a bunch of new digital media businesses. $50 million is a lot of money. To me, it's a sign of powerful sales momentum. Not to the sellers. Even better, Adobe did great on the earnings front. It made $4.09. Street wanted $3.98. No gripe there. Was there a problem in the guidance? No, not really. For the next quarter, Adobe gave an inline revenue forecast with much stronger than expected net new digital media annualized recurring revenue numbers. Remember, there's that ARR. That's what we're looking for. Their earnings outlook, robust. Of course, I always say that you can't jump to conclusions about a quarter until you've listened to the conference call or read the transcript. So then we have to say, well, okay, all right, they made the earnings, they made the forecast. Maybe there was something in the conference call, right? Something discouraging. Maybe this is what freaked people out. But to understand the issue, you need to know what was going on in the company the week before the company reported. See, while Adobe announced its much-hyped Firefly AI platform back in March, the product's been in beta testing for the past six months. Last Wednesday, though, the day before Adobe reported, they announced the commercial launch of Firefly. They said they'd be introducing a bunch of AI-powered features across its whole creative cloud product suite. That, in turn, would justify Adobe's upcoming price increases, talking about a 6 to 10% price hike for existing creative cloud subscribers starting November 1. In response, the stock jumped 2% last Wednesday. That's right, right before the quarter. In other words, it already had a full head of steam going into the report. Or, another way to put at it is it came in real, real hot. You know what? That's just, that's a bad setup. 
It's not unlike what we saw with the stock of Oracle, which we can hear from later in the show. It just makes it too hard for a stock to go higher. When a stock's run up ahead of the quarter, people simply sell the news to take some profits. That just happens. It's what happened to Adobe. It's what happened to NVIDIA. It's happened to all the greats here. Which brings me to last week's conference call. The day after Adobe announced the price increases coming in November, we got their guidance for the three months ending this November. Revenue forecast in line. Earnings, I, I wish that had been up. Earnings forecast slightly ahead of expectations. Got that. Given that the price increases will only impact the final month of the quarter, I really wouldn't read too much into this. But when the bears heard about it, they saw that as an implicit admission that business must be getting worse. They expected the price hikes to make more of a splash in the next quarter, and therefore there had to be a raise forecast. One more little issue. Adobe usually introduces its full-year guidance for the following year at a big investor event during its annual Max User Conference, which takes place every October and is one of the best of these fests that are thrown by these companies. This year, though, management said they'll give you their 2024 forecast when they report the fourth quarter earnings in December, not the Max Conference. So let's say you were eagerly waiting for an update on Adobe's potential AI bump. You're not going to get it. You didn't get it last week. You're not going to get it next month. There we go, right? Uh, instead, you've got to wait until December. I think that made some weak-handed investors bail because they were spooked. They figured there had to be something wrong or else you would have gotten the raise in October. Now, I know that sounds like a tortured explanation for why Adobe stock sold off on Friday, and I agree it is. I think it's a crummy reason to sell, but it's the best explanation I can come up with. And I have scrubbed this thing nine ways to Sunday. I will say that I was a little frustrated to not get any update uh, or at least, at least a substantial update on Adobe's pending $20 billion acquisition of Figma, which they announced a little over a year ago. The deal is currently in regulatory limbo, so they really can't say anything. So they merely said, we remain engaged with regulators and have confidence in the merits of the case. That, that's what all that's what every company says, whether they're going to make it or not. I don't think it explains the sell off, though, because many of the money managers that I talk to don't even want the Figma deal. But many of them would be happy if it was blocked. In the end, I think Adobe sold off after a pretty darn good quarter because it was just priced perfectly, and yet the company didn't give you perfect forecast. In the end, while investors are excited about the boost Adobe could get from its new AI products and the price hikes on existing subscribers, they don't know how big of a boost they're going to get. And that does not make people happy. Or put it another way, Adobe turned out to be one more company that's using AI but not coining money on it yet like NVIDIA's. So far, there's only one NVIDIA. Everyone else is struggling to reap the benefits AI should bring them at least one day, but not this day. Bottom line, Adobe's a great company that reported a strong quarter, so I could care less that they delayed their full-year forecast for 2024 by a couple of months. I think they're doing well. By the way, don't be surprised if the forecast turns out to be pretty darn bullish when you get it, rewarding those who stick with it. That's why, to me, the pullback on Adobe is nothing more than a buying opportunity. By the way, as it has been every single time that this stock has sold off for years now. Shots Newton Orion is a person that you want to bet on bye, bye, bye. when the numbers come down. At least the stock numbers. Dead money's back in the Coming up, everyone loves a good buyback. These stocks are rewarding shareholders with a big one. Find out who's in play next. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Before we get back to our regularly scheduled programming, there's something really exciting that I want to share with you today. The reason it's so special is because it's just for you, our Mad Money viewers. You always hear me talking about the work I do for the special community that is the CNBC Investing Club. For the next two weeks only, I'm going to share a little taste of the work that I do with Jeff Marks during the day. Hey, let me give you an example of what you can get. There's been a lot of negative chatters we all know about how Apple's doing in China. Jeff and I dug into that story. We found out the China story may not be as damaging as we thought. And we shared that with viewers of our morning meeting today at around 1023, it would be. We talked at long, at l- about the long lines of the Apple stores in China going against all the recent reports of restrictions of iPhones for government workers. You can see where the stock of Apple was trading at the time of the morning meeting when we spoke about it. And then you see where it closed. Nice. Now, I think you should be joining the club. Uh, and i got to tell you, I think that news like this is really commonplace for us. CBC is offering an exclusive offer only available to you, my Mad Money viewers. So grab your phone, open your camera, and point it to the QR code, or go to the cbc.com slash gym offer. And I hope to see you, in a manner of speaking at least, at the monthly meeting happening this Thursday at noon. Now, how about some regular programming? Something that really stuck with me last week when I spoke to Gary Friedman, the CEO of RH. Remember that used to be Restoration Harbor? It's a week and a half ago. Now, the stock had plummeted in response to a seemingly downbeat conference call. I thought that was a mistake. Now, I'm giving you a bunch of these where I think that the quarter's reaction uh, and then the sell-offs were wrong. And this is one of them. The fact that RH, why do I think it shouldn't have sold off? Because they bought back a phenomenal 17% of the shares outstanding in just this quarter. And it's now repurchased 23% of its shares outstanding since the year began. It's like the company's gradually taking itself private. You can't beat that, right? That was one of the largest single quarter buybacks I've ever heard of. Regular viewers know that I love these massive repurchases because they shrink the share count, which results in a higher earnings per share. You might call it financial engineering, but it's financial engineering that works. More importantly, though, a huge buyback is a tremendous sign of confidence from management. Sure, Gary Friedman had some cautious commentary about the broader economy. I, I thought that was actually much more boilerplate than real, people realized. He clearly believes in RH's uh, long-term trajectory, or else he wouldn't be retiring so much stock. It's almost counterintuitive. Why would he buy all the stock back if he was really negative? The answer is he's not really negative. Since then, well, we've been hunting for companies in the SP 500 that have bought back gigantic slugs of stock, and we've got them. Uh, oh, I've got to tell you, first of all, nobody comes close to this one. This is just massive, bro. all right? But we do have some impressive share count reductions. So many of them, we plan to roll them out over multiple nights this week. That's how important we think these buybacks are. Looking over the 15 largest share repurchases in the S&P, some of them are a lot more attractive than others, which is why I want to take the whole group one by one. Why don't we start with one that was a little surprising to me, frankly, it was Fox Corp. That's decreased its share count by 16% year-to-date. That's the most of any company in the S&P, thanks to a $2 billion repurchase program in its fiscal year that ended in June. While that program's over, Fox just authorized a new $7 billion buyback last month. 
Now, this is the remnants of the old 21st century Fox that didn't get sold to Disney. And in general, most legacy media companies have struggled this year, in part because Wall Street's no longer willing to give them a, a pass for spending fortunes to build out their streaming platforms. Fox is a little different, though. While they have their own streaming platform, Tubi, that's T-U-B-I, they haven't broken the bank to really develop the platform like many people feel that the others have. In fact, Fox currently has one of the best balance sheets in the industry because they sold the bulk of the business to Disney for more than $70 billion. That was an incredible transaction for them. Uh, and a lot of people feel that uh, Disney, of course, paid too much. While Fox's stock has been weighed down by a high-profile defamation lawsuit, management's been using that weakness to buy back stock like crazy, something they can afford because of the magnificent balance sheet that they have. Has it worked? That's a tougher question. While Fox stock is up 4.7% for the year, much better than, say, Disney or Paramount Global, it's lagging behind both Warner Brothers, Discovery, and Comcast, the parent company of this network. Overall, Fox is not my favorite media play because I like growth, but the stock's certainly very cheap, and I think the downside's limited because of this buyback. I mean, it's a $15 billion buyback, $7 billion, $15 billion uh, company, okay? $7 billion buyback. I mean, you absolutely got my permission to buy it, someone we just, but it's really because of the buyback that's intriguing, not so much the business itself. Next up is a group that we're going to cover together because these are three refiners and they showed up on our list of biggest S&P 500 buybacks. Marathon Petroleum is the second largest repurchaser of its own shares. You've asked about that many times, retiring nearly 15 percent of its share count. OK, Valero is uh, eighth. That was with an 8.4 percent share count reduction. All right. And Phillips 66 is number 15. And that is nearly a 6% decrease in share count. Remember, that means they're buying back the stock and shrinking the number of st- shares outstanding. The knock on the refiners is that it's tough to tell how they're going to grow in the long run, Gra- especially as the world's gradually shifting from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. That would obviate the need for these companies, right? I say they might not need to grow all that much, though, because they're already making so much money right now. And with very little competition, because there's hardly any new refining capacity coming online, especially here in America, it's really hard to add to the refineries. Why? Because of environmental regulation. So if they're fi- no one wants a refiner next to them. Do you want one? I don't. So if the refiners can simply keep the revenue and margins generally steady, they can achieve earnings growth in part through large buybacks like the ones we've seen from Marathon, from Valero, and from Phillips 66. You should write all these down. These are important because when the market's really bad, one of the things I want you to do is remember who's buying back the most stock. Look at how these are doing versus the rest of the energy sector. Despite the recent gains in the group, the energy sector still lagged the market this year. It's up just over 5%. But these three refiners are all up double digits for the year, led by the largest repurchaser, Marathon Pete. That's up 34% year to date. And believe me, that is no coincidence. These are all doing better than their oil brethren. It's because of the buybacks. I mean, especially the way, this is the best way to stay invested in the energy complex in many ways, because uh, if oil prices top out and begin to retreat from their highs, these do well. Remember, the refiners do great when the price of crude comes down because gasoline never falls as fast as the oil price. And the wider the spread between the two, the more money the refiners make. So it's a pretty simple equation. We've got the buyback and we've got profits and we've got big profits if the price of oil drops. Let me give you one more buyback story tonight. That's a, it's an alpha called State Street. It's one of the largest custodial banks, uh, as well as being one of the largest issuers of ETFs behind only BlackRock and Vanguard. A custodial bank success or failure in any given year typically comes down to asset prices. When stocks and bonds are going up, something like State Street does better because their assets under custody balance grows. That's why State Street stock is normally joined at the hip with its chief competitor, which is Bank of New York Mellon. 
But this year, State Street stock is down 8%, while Bank of New York stock is down just 2, uh, 2%. Part because State Street lost some key custodial businesses from BlackRock's I, to, uh, from BlackRock's iShares ETF unit. They lost it to them. I mean, just so you understand, these, are, these companies really go to, uh, hammer and tongs at each other. And if one takes some business from another, the one who lost the business stock tends to go down. I bring this up because buybacks are not a panacea. You absolutely shouldn't buy a stock simply because it's repurchasing its own shares like crazy. You need to figure out if the buyback's coming from a place of strength or a place of weakness. The classic example is Bed Bath & Beyond. Do you know that company bought back a ton of stock all the way down, and then it went bankrupt? In the end, if the underlying business is not so hot, a buyback is a terrible idea. Might as well just hand over that cash to investors via a dividend. I think R.H. Fox and their finest are all buying back stock from a place of strength, though. But State Street's repurchase feels different. Like they just can't think of anything better to use with the money. The best thing I can say about State Street is they got a solid yield, 3.9%. Companies planning to buy back $4.5 billion of stock this year. That's very generous. I just wish I had something to be excited about when it comes to State Street's actual business. So here's the bottom line. Throughout this week, we'll be running a multi-part series on the biggest buyback monsters, the SP 500, telling you which are worth buying and which ones aren't, like State Street, and which ones should just be, I don't know, doing, give me a better dividend. But what's important that you know is that this is a great place to be thinking about when the market sells off. Let's go to Tom in New York. Tom. Hi, Jim. This is Tom from Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Tom. What's going on? Well, my wife and I are both members of your club. Oh, thank you. And we have a question regarding a stock. ON Semiconductor Corp. We'd like your opinion on it. The ticker symbol is ON. All right, this is a remarkable company. It is a company that reported fantastic numbers, but it is getting less and less of a, what we call price earnings multiple for it because people feel it is very involved with the economy. It does a lot of industrial, a lot of Internet of Things situations there, and those are supposed to slow with the economy slowing. So it's trading too much like a, a, a GDP play and not enough like a tech play right now. Thank you for being members of the club. All right, not all buybacks are created equal. So you have to do the work to figure out which ones are worth watching and which ones, like State Street, might be better off passing on. Much more made money at it, including my Susan with Oracle. Last week, after earnings, the cloud giant suffered a single day decline that it hasn't seen in nearly two decades. So is it time to start picking up pieces among the rubble? I'm getting to the core of the story with the CEO. Then the September rate decision is expected out of the Fed this week. I'm seeing, let, let's figure out what you can expect. And the way to call is rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. make of the huge pullback for Oracle shares last week. Wow, it was a stunner. The enterprise software company had been one of the best performers of the year, up 58% at the end of August. Kind of like Adobe, right? But then it reported a seemingly mixed quarter last Monday. Stock plunged 13.5% in a single session. Now, I think the company's doing terrific. I actually thought the quarter was okay. Uh, we'll be talking about the quarter and the company at Thursday's club meeting at noon, but don't take it from me. Earlier today, we got a chance to check in with Safra Kat. She's the CEO of Oracle in a rare TV interview coming from Oracle's Cloud World Conference in Las Vegas. Take a look. Ms. Katz, welcome to Mad Money. Hey, Jim, and feel free to call me Safra. Well, We've I... been meeting quite a bit, so... You are Safra from now on. Now, Safra, you're at uh, your incredible Cloud World uh, Festival. I'm going to call it a festival. And please tell me what the buzz is about Oracle. Does it include Microsoft? Does it include NVIDIA? And just tell me about what's going on there right now. 
Well, there is so much going on. Of course, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of our customers here, and many of them are talking about how they use OCI, how they're using our AI capabilities, how they're using Fusion. They're talking about our special relationship with NVIDIA, and of course, our special relationship with Microsoft that Larry and Satya announced last week. So we have so much exciting stuff, we don't have enough time tonight to talk about it. Let's talk about what happened on the day when you reported the stock had its worst day than uh, worst day since 2002. And yet you and I both know that there was a moment where we were shocked because there's so much good news. Maybe you can just refresh people about why that may have been a wrong judgment by the stock market. Well, you know, the stock market over a long period of time ends up being right. But at any one moment, it can be completely off. I mean, imagine our OCI business grew over 60%, our cloud business over 30%, our overall business over 9%, our earnings 16%. It's kind of uh, a moment, we were a little bit surprised, but you know what? We continue to grow, we continue to accelerate in our growth, and we know that our shareholders are going to benefit enormously as we continue to do our job, which is to help our customers do more, spend less doing it, and move to the cloud. Okay, so you did say at the end that your demand, level of demand is stunning. Stunning is the only word I can use. And yet, when I read some research notes, including a downgrade by J.P. Morgan and a lukewarm piece by Stiefel, they're talking about limited AI. They don't see a lot of visibility. And they're surprised that if you have such strong demand, why you're not spending more on CapEx. So how do we juggle these two visions? Well, first of all, we spent a lot last year in setting up the basics for our clouds. And now as we expand, we start filling them up. And to spend just as much filling up a center as you did in the initial is amazing. It means we are filling up centers around the world with computers. And so for us, we have so much demand that we, we just keep booking it. In fact, in the first week of this quarter, we booked another billion and a half just in AI workloads. And we keep winning every single competition against others because our system's so much newer. We have access to the chips. And so because it's so much newer, it is much faster. And as you know, in the cloud, time is money. So if you can finish a workload, whether it's training an AI large language model or using it for other purposes, if you can do that faster, let's say twice as fast or often more than that, you pay half as much. It's one of the reasons that the AI startups who compete heads up all the hyperscalers are picking us. And so we're just rolling out and filling those data centers and costs a lot. But the, remember, we build our own computers. We've got everything optimized. 
and it's much, much faster. Now, Safra, I think there was some uh, disappointment uh, in the way that Cerner's uh, accounted for. I know that you had to go that radically because obviously it's not a licensed business. I know Cerner is a robust business. I have to believe that you're winning some big, some big contracts, and yet people keep saying they, they spent $28 billion and they got very little in return. Can you explain to people why Cerner can pay off? Cerner for us is an opening for us to bring health care, which is an enormous market, into the 21st century. And the Cerner we bought is still the international leader in electronic health records. But what we need to do is both use all that data and help hospital systems and countries move all of that data to use AI and actually help save lives. So instead of the decades spent by doctors making sure billing codes are correct and administrative things are done, yes, assume that's true, and we'll continue to do that, but imagine helping save lives. And that is really where this is going. In fact, this market is so enormous that as Larry mentioned on the call, we've been chosen for two billion dollar contracts in just the first few weeks of the quarter. Again, for a billion dollar quarter, a billion dollar contracts to bring healthcare to the 21st century. And we have really unlimited capabilities in that area. So yes, we don't recognize a lot of that uh, revenue up front, but over time, that's where the big payoff is. Remember, we didn't want to leave Cerner just as it was. We wanted to modernize it, and we're doing that with all the technology that we have right. to do uh, it. I wish people had understood that on the call. I think that was a much more succinct way than the analysts have described it. Can you explain to me, by the way, whether TikTok, which you are involved with, could end up being a big win for Oracle. None of the analysts seem to care. But if we decided in this country that we didn't want TikTok to be controlled by the Chinese, the logical company to win would be Oracle. Well, for us to remember, TikTok runs in our Oracle cloud infrastructure. They chose us after competing us with all the others and getting recommendations from other customers of ours, which allow them to run TikTok much more profitably than they would if they were in other clouds. They're in our cloud and they continue to work with the United States government on security and uh, we're available to help on that. Well, I think that that's a great piece of business. The final thing that I would like to know is uh, Oracle trades at a very reasonable price. Uh, you repurchased 1.3 million shares last time for, uh, for 150 million, but you do have the, the capability and the cash flow is humongous here to be able to buy far more stock and be more aggressive if you would like. Even though the stock's up a lot this year, is this a good level for Oracle to be buying stock? I sure think so. As I've told you all before, we continue our buybacks, and when we get buying opportunities like have opened up in the past week or so, don't think we don't put our money where our mouth is. We've got some pretty significant plans, and of course, our, uh, our board has uh, given us permission, and 
Of course, I also want to always guard my credit rating, which we've got plenty of room with. Well, I think we just heard the straight story about Oracle, and I'm glad we did because I did not feel that the analysts correctly described or articulated what you and Larry are up to. But you have. Safra Katz, Oracle Corporation CEO, thank you for spending the time with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. That's Safra Katz, and Mad Money will be right back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. When you play the sound. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. I'm going to start with Craig in Kansas. Craig. Yeah, Jim. The Craig. stock I'm calling about has gone down seven days in a row. And the stock is Dollar General. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who feel like that the dollar stores just did not deliver great numbers and are not offering great value. It is incredible. Look, I'm not, never going to tell someone to sell a stock that's down seven straight days, but I have to tell you, that is the negative thesis, and it's got great resonance. Let's go to Wayne in Maryland. Wayne. Oh, yeah, Jim loved the show. Hey, thank you so much, Wade. Got a five-fold sell question. Good company I've bought for the long haul, run into a lot of headwinds, Paycom. Okay, the problem with Paycom, it is one of those fintech companies. The fintechs are going out of fashion. The only ones that are really working, that is both, you know, it's it's enterprise software and it's also employment. I could look at maybe Workday, but that's too expensive, too, in some degree. So I just think that is not a place to be. Fintech involved with employment, not a place to be. Bill in Massachusetts. Bill. Hey, Jim, I got a bad to the phone booyah for you. All right, let's hear it. I'm a retired firefighter. I did 36 years in a job, and I'm retired now. And quite a few retired brothers and sisters using a little cannabis. They make some pains and some for their PTSD. U.S. government's taking down some of the criminality of it all. Is it a good time to stash some cash in Tilray? Well, I'll tell you, first, it's great that you've been a firefighter for all those years, and we're all uh, grateful for your service. Uh, Tilray is too dangerous. It is a spec stock that is losing money, and we don't recommend stocks that are losing money. On man money. Pretty simple rule. Mark in New York. Mark. Hey, Jim. Big fan. Uh, oh, thank I you, Mark. Fast. What's going on? I bought Fastly back in late 2000 when it was over, uh, it was over 100. Right. And right since then, they've uh, changed leadership. I was wondering if uh, you think it could be time to pick up some more. They haven't They up. haven't pivoted to profitability, and I'm not going to recommend a stock that hasn't pivoted to profitability that has a very high price to sales uh, analysis. Too high. Let's go to Sean in California. Sean. Hey, how's it going, Jim? I'm doing well. How about you, Sean? Doing great. Calling to see if you have an update for me on a stock that has some insider buying from the chairman today, Supergroup. Supergroup is, you know, I... I t- I am stymied by Supergroup because I feel like it's got so many good things going for it. And, and you know, but I think that people just say, "Listen, I'd rather own DraftKings," and that's really all that. That in, when all said and done, that's what people want. That uh, nothing I can do about. It. Let's go to Rory in Louisiana. Rory, booyah, Jim Kramer. Well, we are back, Rory. What's going on? <laughs> I built a position in a uh, communications company off of a uh, interview I saw back in March of 2019 on your show. Mm-hmm. And 
I've built a good position in it, and I've been pulling the profits out, and I've got over three times my investment pulled out of it. And my nice. question, since it's down 25% from its 52-week high, what I, my question is, are the company's recently acquired contracts and the upgrade from Deutsche Bank enough of a catalyst for me to let Iridium Communications continue Iridium? to run? Or should um, I pull I, that? I actually think that Iridium's doing quite well. A piece of research hit my desk today, just today, saying that Iridium's doing incredibly well. I scanned it. I said, geez, you know, I'm surprised. I remember when it was much lower, just like you. Congratulations, but it's looking good. Andrew in Florida. Andrew. Jim, a big booyah from the Sunshine State. Oh, fantastic, Andrew. Thank you for calling. What can I do for you? Hey, right now I'm heavily positioned in a, in a uh, blue chip pharmaceutical. Um, I have been happy with Pfizer for the last, for a little while, but obviously it's been underperforming, not yes. living up to any expectations. What I've done over the last couple quarters for the first time is started taking some dividends because they do pay a pretty nice dividend. Yeah. I mean, should, should I hold the, you know, should I just hold on the stock, keep on taking the cash? Should I sell a little bit? Should I keep it? Jimmy, give me some ideas, I, I, give me some thoughts. Pfizer yields 5%. I, I, I can't tell you to sell it here. I just can't. It, it's just a very good company. They, they can they have a lot of optionality. I'm not going to pay to sell Pfizer. Not down here. Let's go to Sean in Ohio. Sean. Hey, big folk. Booyah to you, Jim. How Thank you, you, Sean. What's going on? They're good. Calling you from the University of Dayton and the Hanley Sustainability Fund. Okay. And I'd like to run by this company, Atcor. They're a mid-sized industrial name with really strong cash flows and good financials, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on them. I do not know Atcor. I'm going to have to come back, do some homework on that one. Uh, it looks like interesting, but that's not enough to recommend it. We'll have to do some checking. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. bulk of the economy. It sure seems like the Fed has some leeway to sit on its hands, doesn't it? We've seen prices come down in so many areas, especially when it comes to supply chains and labor. But I mentioned last week that I'm starting to worry about how we could have an embedded inflation problem, one that could lead the Fed to take a more hawkish stance than my fellow bulls are expecting. So it's obvious. Price of fuel. Of course, even with oil at $92, we're still below the highs from last year. That's helpful. But we also know there's no relief in sight. Only three things can get oil prices down. More supply from the Middle East and Russia, more supply from right here in the U.S., or uh, less demand from China's flowing economy. I know we think that China's weak and the real estate sector has been a disaster, but the demand for gasoline hasn't slowed. and Apparently, they'll take every barrel of oil that Russia can give them. Russia itself knows that whatever meager embargo Europe can muster, the demand is strong for discounted crude. As long as war in Ukraine goes on, Russia will pump and accept a lower price trade-off for volume, even as they publicly endorse OPEC plus production cuts. Saudis, this one's toughest to figure. Have the Saudis just gamed it and decided that Biden must go? Sure seems that way. As for the U.S., our oil companies have truly embraced spending discipline. Last year, with higher prices, they were busy talking up higher uh, dividends. Scott Sheffield, the terrific CEO of Pioneer, bragged endlessly about his company wanting to have the highest dividend in the SP 500. Then oil plummeted, and the notion of the highest dividend gave way to a consistent buyback, but only at lower levels. Now, oil's come back up, but the oil companies are circumspect, not opening the spigot as wide as you would expect. They're focused on return of cash flow through buybacks, not boosting production. We know that higher fuel costs are passed on to consumers through transportation. Uh, but that doesn't mean the transport just eat the cost. Instead, they pass it on to you. It's already happening. And that's not the only issue. Take a look at Detroit, where the United Auto Workers are on strike at the big three. The automakers offered 20% pay increase over four years, and that's offered but soundly rejected. They're even willing to offer generous cost of living increases, which is the bane of the Fed's existence. Because once wages start baking in inflation, it gets totally embedded in the system. 
Well, the automakers cave. If they do, the Fed could be worried about a wave of new inflationary contracts. Listen, I don't blame anyone for trying to get better pay, but if the UAW wins here, that's a bad news on the inflation front. It would make it more likely that the Federal Reserve will lower the boom on us. But there was a shocker last week that I didn't see a soul pay attention to. Stuart Miller, executive chairman of Lennar, said consumers recognize that the, quote, cost of housing will likely continue to be higher, end quote. He said this despite home prices coming down on 10 to 11 percent. So maybe he's talking this book. But if Miller's serious, the consumer truly expects housing prices to keep rising, then the Fed may have to take rates up to levels where people are outright afraid to pay up for new home, if only because mortgage rates will be downright extortionate. My biggest worry? As long as we have strong employment, consumers aren't pulling back from the worst part of inflation, housing. The saving grace is that there have been one million rental units added these last two years. That can put a lid on some price increases. Remember, rentals are reflecting the CPI, while real estate isn't. But let's not kid ourselves. The Fed knows better. And we got some affordability figures today for housing that are just dreadful. So going into this week's Fed meeting, I think there's plenty of reason for the Fed to be surprisingly hawkish, especially after that bummer of a CPI report last week. Don't get overconfident. People are just too complacent, and that itself is making me worry. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 